0: Welcome friends, this is episode 58 of the Syracuse Sports Podcast. My name is Brent Dax, thank you so much for being here. If you found the link through on Syracuse.com or perhaps social media, great ways to listen to this podcast, but let me remind you that you can subscribe. Just go to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, hit that subscribe button and a new episode of the Syracuse Sports Podcast will be made available to you when it's fresh and ready. Looking forward to this conversation today. Ian Eagle, one of the best play-by-play broadcasters in the business and one of the biggest alums from the Syracuse University Newhouse School of Communications. Ian Eagle from CBS Sports, Westwood One, the voice of the Brooklyn Nets on Yes and the father of the new play-by-play broadcaster of the Los Angeles Clippers. That's right, Ian's son, Noah Eagle, at 22 years old, has become a voice of an NBA team. We'll discuss when those two could cross paths with their respective teams, his time at Syracuse, how he prepares for the multitude of jobs that he has, and so much more. Hope you enjoy that conversation with Ian Eagle coming up here shortly. But we start with Syracuse football's biggest fear, and that fear is complacency. Last year saw an unprecedented run for Syracuse football and an unprecedented return for Syracuse football fans. After Syracuse went 10-3, and made the Camping World Bowl, made a return to the top 25 rankings, and overall just brought a great feeling back to Syracuse football, the fans were convinced. They were asked to have faith in Syracuse football, and they saw Dino Babers and company pull off upsets over Clemson, over Florida State, over Virginia Tech, nearly defeating teams like LSU and Miami along the way. What more could validate what Dino Babers was asking for? What he asked us to close our eyes and envision that first time he took the podium as Syracuse football head coach. Well, here we are, eight games into a season later, and it is a disaster. Syracuse is three and five with four to go. The thought that the Orange could go winless the rest of the season and go from ten and three to three and nine is not only possible. It's likely at this point with the struggles of Syracuse quarterback Tommy DeVito, his offensive line, and other issues that have plagued this team. Now, the ACC is as wide open as a conference as there is, so writing anything down in ink would not be advisable. But it is going to be a tough road for Syracuse to win three of their last four games, which is what it will take just to become bowl eligible once again. We've spent plenty of time sorting through what happened and how it's happened, and the coaching staff will try and salvage something from this 2019 season. But how will the fans respond? All those fans that felt safe to come back to Syracuse football last year after being scorned for so many years. Those fans that bought season tickets once again or for the first time. I think the attendance at Saturday's game against Boston College, the actual attendance, the butts in seats attendance, will tell us a lot about that. If the Orange could pull off a victory over Boston College, who has the 126th-ranked defense in college football and has only accumulated eight sacks on the season, music to the ears of a team that's allowed 42 sacks all season long, a stat that leads the nation. If Syracuse can clean up its penalty problem, they're the third most penalized team in the country, can somehow slow down superstar running back A.J. Dillon and come out of the Carrier Dome with a win into a bye week, perhaps people will keep an eye on the Orange and not fully invest themselves into Jim Bayheim's basketball team quite yet. But if the Orange lose, I just said it a moment ago, they go into a bye week after that with three games to go against Duke, Louisville, and Wake Forest. The worst thing you can have is a team that people don't care about. When the team was riding high last year, people couldn't stop talking about Syracuse football. Basketball season, when is that? Now the question is, when is basketball season? If the team is really bad, surely changes will be asked for from the Syracuse fan base. Offensive coordinator Mike Lynch, offensive line coach Mike Cavanaugh are surely in the crosshairs of Orange fans if that unit continues to struggle the way that it has. But what you don't want is right in the middle. Complacency. Where no one cares. Where there's no passion either way. And my fear is if Syracuse does lose to Boston College, that's what you could get. all those new fans, and even some of your older fans. They'll just check out and won't care how this season finishes. And that is the worst fear of Syracuse Athletic Director John Wildhack, Syracuse Head Coach Dino Babers, and those involved in the program. You want people engaged one way or the other. You would prefer it be the way they were a season ago. But if this team continues sliding down the path it's on now, it'll just remind of the not-so-good old times for Syracuse football fans. And the thought, maybe even the fear, that 2018 was some kind of mirage. Let's check in with Ian Eagle, play-by-play broadcaster, CBS Sports, Westwood One, the voice of the Brooklyn Nets, and now the father of an NBA play-by-play voice as well. Here's the SUA. It out 14 to shoot 26 seconds to play nets are down by one irving step back three oh! Kyrie irving it the- i'm sure that you've had many discussions with noah over the years about getting into the world of broadcasting it's kind of like minor league baseball you got to start off in some cities maybe you didn't think you were going to live in work your way up the ladder and then maybe one day one day You could be calling games for a professional sports team. Can somebody tell this kid this is not the way this works, that you walk out of college and get a job as an NBA play-by-play announcer at 22 years old? This is amazing.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible, Brent. He was not the least bit intimidated by the idea of getting into this business, and to me that was a big first step. It's obviously... Uh, very special when your child is interested in what you do, and in my case, uh, that was a form of bonding for us from his very early years, uh, pouring through media guides, watching me prepare, coming to games with me. So he was always around it, and I think because of that, it felt attainable to him. It, it was a big part of his life. It wasn't something that I just did on the weekends and I never talked about when i was home with play by play you're always preparing you're chipping away it's leading towards the game and you can't just show up and and do things off the top of your head so he was always around it he was always exposed to it and he didn't choose the easiest path he didn't just say well let me go to a different school where my my father didn't go and my mom didn't go And I'll just create my own persona somewhere else. He chose Syracuse for a number of factors and not the least of which uh, the reputation and what they do with aspiring broadcasters, young people that have an aptitude for this and being around an environment where other people have the same goals and the same dreams that you have. So I think, That played such a large role in not just getting into the business and uh, taking the necessary steps, but also believing that you could do big things, not just being happy with, I just want to be on the air somewhere, but "I I want to be in a great position. And how it all came together, it was just a confluence of some pretty astounding events that led to him ultimately getting the job.
0: Can you take me back to those moments so Noah's getting ready to graduate and this opportunity comes up for him as that process is going on? I mean, that's a lot to think about right there. You are surely proud as a parent that he's getting ready to graduate from Syracuse University and then this opportunity springs up. When you first heard that an NBA team, and in this case the LA Clippers, were interested to make him their play-by-play voice, what was your first thought?
1: Well, I was... Uh, at home with my wife, Lisa, and she asked me after Noah had called us, is this realistic? Is this possible? And I said, no, no, it's it's not, it's not realistic. I said, this is going to be a tremendous experience for him to go through this process, to interview at the highest of levels, to audition at the highest of levels, and to use that experience as a springboard for other possibilities and opportunities in his life. But no, I, I, didn't, I didn't really see it as, as feasible, just based on everything that I know. I got the Nets job at a very young age. I was 25 years old. But I had been working in the market. I had been at WFAN Radio, at the All Sports Radio Station in New York City, And I had a growing reputation in the market that I was young and that I was eager and that I was professional and that it would be a good hire and they wouldn't be laughed at from the hire. Uh, It was praised that they were looking outside the box and I had a dynamic leader, the president of the Nets at the time, John Spolstra, Eric Spolstra's dad, Uh, didn't really see things through the same prism as others. So it takes some creativity, and it requires someone that sees the big picture to make that kind of hire. The Clippers obviously uh, view it through the same lens, and I think Noah just made such a positive impression that they tried to figure out a way to get him involved. The job he interviewed for was the television job was not the radio job and ultimately it was the radio job that was offered to him and my sense of it is uh, they were impressed by him and just felt they wanted to figure out a way uh, for him to be a part of what they envisioned for 2019-2020 on the broadcast side.
0: And you mentioned of course Noah went to so many games with you watched you prepare saw you go through your process so now he gets this job and I know we're just very early into the NBA season but is there something that he has told you that now that he's doing it is kind of like a, okay, I get it. I understand it more now because I'm doing it. Is there an aha moment that he has shared with you now that he's calling games?
1: Yeah, I think more than anything else, it's the budgeting of time. Uh, That can often be the, the biggest hurdle for people that are tossed into this situation. Now, if you've done play-by-play for 10 years at a lower level and you get your opportunity at a higher level, you've created a routine and a regimen that you follow. You might have to adjust it based on travel, uh, based on circumstances, based on what's expected of you in the new job. You might have more of uh, a larger role on the pregame show or during the week leading up to the game as opposed to uh, your previous job or vice versa, where you were asked to do so much more at your previous job. And now they're just asking you to do the games. Uh, I think for him, it's been a combination of uh, the preparation and just the travel of getting around and uh, getting home at two in the morning or two thirty in the morning after a game on the second half of a back to back and figuring out how much sleep your body needs and, how to stay engaged and fight through being tired in the first half of the game and he's solo there's no analyst on the radio side it's all him all the time so the tips that i had given him prior to the season starting really dealt more with that part of it not the mechanics of play-by-play that's something that's ingrained in you and he knows basketball he has a very good feel for the rhythm of the game but how to prepare what to expect and how best to budget your time i really felt that's where i could help him at least in the lead up to the opening of the season
0: friday march 13th wednesday march 25th what do these dates mean to you
1: Brent, normally they would mean a uh, truly uh, incredible potential occasion for our family because the Nets are playing the Clippers on those two dates. But because of my responsibilities with college basketball, having called the NCAA tournament, Uh,
0: I was wondering about
1: this. Yeah. Two years. Yeah. Just do the math. I I am going to be required to, to be elsewhere. So I don't think I'm going to see him for either one of those broadcasts. Now there's a chance I could still get a Clipper game through TNT. There's a possibility of that. So
0: good call. Yep, uh,
1: that still could happen, which would be great. But I don't think the broadcast gods were were looking over us on on the local side of things. But that's okay too. In, in all reality, and, and I mean this uh, as uh, as sincerely as I possibly. Could tell you this because it's something that i know no one knows it's not about him it's not about me it's about the games and it's about the clippers and it's about telling those stories and in my case the nets telling those stories chronicling uh, the great uh, individual efforts throughout the season and making sure your priorities are in order yes would have been great would have been nice but it, it, it's not going to make or break our experience. Well,
0: here's here's the makeup call, I guess. First of all, we've got to have a word with that NBA schedule maker so we can make this happen.
1: <laughs> it's Tom Corelli from yeah. the NBA. If you want to just go and reach out to him individually.
0: That was a quick Google job <laughs> by you there. That was fantastic.
1: <laughs> but... no, Tom, I did see Tom recently, and uh, he started laughing. <laughs> <about certain laughs> now, Tom's a great guy, and he does a tremendous job.
0: Here's the makeup call, though. Brooklyn and the LA Clippers. It is very possible here in the next few years they could meet up in the NBA Finals. So I think you would much rather hang out with Noah during, say, something like that as opposed to a random March evening.
1: Yeah, Brett. From from your mouth to uh, the the heavens. If if that happens, that would be an all timer. And let me tell you, from the Clipper side of things, they they very well could do it this year. They're that good. I think they're deep enough. Uh, they play a certain style that uh, Doc Rivers knows will work come playoff time. There are going to have to be defensive improvements. Uh, the question will be whether or not they can handle certain teams that have real size. But they have the makings to, to go on a long, extended run. And, and Doc's been there before. I just think it might be a perfect storm for the Clippers based on Kawhi's presence, the team they put around them, and Doc's experience. The Nets side of things, with Kevin Durant and the possibility of Durant and Kyrie forming this super duo uh, during what is still Kyrie's prime, and Kevin Durant will be a man on a mission when he comes back. I I know that. I I feel that in my bones. The Nets, they will have a chance somewhere over the next couple of years to, to maybe have something to say about the Eastern Conference and, and being a contender for an NBA championship. That would be something that uh, I'm not even sure I could wrap my brain around if those two teams ever met. And just the little brother syndrome in there, Brent, between the two cities of L.A. and New York. The Lakers and the Knicks get... So many of the headlines, and rightfully so. Uh, They're two of the great franchises in NBA history. But the fact that the Nets and the Clippers made so much headway during this offseason, it really makes for an incredible narrative.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, Ian. I mean, it's early in the process here, and you mentioned Durant doesn't even come into the picture until next year. And as somebody who's done radio in New York, has been in that area, and knows as well as anybody, look, the Knicks are an institution. But Brooklyn, I think, has done everything they can here to try and turn the tide and let people know there's a team in New York that's pretty darn good and is going to make a run here. How how do you feel the energy shifting around this Brooklyn Nets team, even early in this process?
1: Yeah, it's a funny thing in life, Brent. Oftentimes when we get hung up on trying to achieve one specific thing, then you lose sight of the big picture. And I think for many years the Nets were very focused on trying to combat the Knicks and do everything in their power to fight for some credibility within the New York market. And when Sean Marks came in and took over as the general manager and the main decision maker on basketball operations, I think he had a fresh perspective. He had no background in New York basketball. He had been around the league, obviously, as a player and then as an assistant coach and, and executive with San Antonio. And he just didn't see it the same way that others did and his view was no the the goal is to build a championship team and not worry about what the Knicks are doing or not worry about the battle uh, within the boroughs and I think it served him well ultimately uh, a byproduct of building a good team and doing it the right way and creating a positive culture the byproduct is you're better than the Knicks and there are people within the New York area, the tri-state area, that have taken notice. Attendance is up. Buzz in the building is up. TV numbers early on, they're up. All of these things are happening because the process was done correctly. And not just, let's take on the Knicks. It's been a different way and the right way of approaching a problem or a challenge that the Nets have been dealing with since long before I even got there. And I started in 1994. It was always that feeling of being a second-class citizen. But a nice arena, a uh, infrastructure now to build and create interest within Brooklyn. And I think, I really believe this after now eight years of going into Brooklyn, still living in Jersey, but watching the transformation, creating some some real honest-to-goodness uh, conversation in Brooklyn for a generation of fans that want it, that are looking for it, that wanted another option and believe that this can work and two teams could actually – resonate in the New York market, unlike the Knicks and whoever the other team is, that the Nets will actually get mentioned in the same conversation. It it definitely feels different than it had uh, prior.
0: You mentioned earlier the process, and you're always kind of constructing a a play-by-play broadcast. This has got to be a very busy time of the year for you to go from doing Brooklyn Nets TNT games, CBS Sports, Thursday Night Football on Westwood One. Uh, you are you are Bob the Builder when it comes to constructing these <laughs> play-by-play broadcasts. So uh, tell me about the tools you use to do that.
1: Well, the first thing I realized when, when I started working for a number of different entities is one network doesn't care or want to hear about the other network. And I made a really conscious effort that whatever's happening in my Nets life doesn't carry over into my CBS life, and whatever's happening in my CBS life doesn't carry over to my Westwood life, and so on and so forth. When I get to the city for the event that I'm going to call, that's where all of my attention and focus is put into. And that's the only way it should be. Uh, Whoever is working that game with me for that network that's where their focus is. And it's the most important thing happening for them that week. And it's not even just the idea of placating or pacifying your, your bosses. It has to be real. It has to be organic. And it has to be authentic. And that's helped me a great deal in compartmentalizing and making sure that I'm all in for every event that I'm working. And that has to come across on the air. Uh, you can't just look at one of the games as a filler for a bigger game later in the week. It doesn't work that way. Every game I do is important. That's the way that I view it. And if it's a random Tuesday night NBA game for the Nets against a team that doesn't get a whole lot of attention in the NBA, well, it's my job to figure out a way to, to make that informative and entertaining. That's the job. That's how I view it my job to to make the person that I'm sitting next to be the best that they can be, be a good partner, be a good teammate. So that means constantly engaging, and that means living in the moment. The preparation part, look, if, if you're a procrastinator, then this is not for you. <laughs> it, it just isn't. You can't push things off until the night before or the day of. Uh, you've got to be really smart in how you Go about your business, getting ahead when necessary. If you have assignments that are given to you weeks ahead of time and you have some free time, then dedicate some time to them. Start chipping away. If I know that, and I found out that Detroit and Chicago is coming up on my schedule for the NFL, well, start looking into that. Start your board. Start your preparation. If you've got three hours to spare on a Monday or Tuesday and you've already done some of the work that is required for the games you're doing that week, chip away at the boards for the following week or the week after that. Have some foresight. Uh, to me, that that's the only way that I know how to do it. I'm still a handwritten guy. I'm not computer-based in what I do. Helps me learn, helps me memorize, helps me personalize. And that's, it's probably never going to change. I've had a bunch of different services come to me and say, hey, we can make your boards for you. We can make your life easier. You might make my life easier that day, but you're not going to make my life easier when I'm living in the moment of the game and I've got to come up with a tidbit or a stat or a bit of personal information that fits in in that one moment. i got to know where it is. I got to know where it came from. And I have to feel confident in delivering it. And I only feel confident if if I did the work myself and, and I know that, that I went through the process to make sure that's a good piece of information.
0: Take me back to the late 80s, 1990, when you were here at Syracuse University, because we know the reputation of WAER now and what a, a terrific station it has been in developing broadcasters. What was it like then? Was it gaining the reputation? Did you kind of sense, you know, some of the names that had been there before? Maybe this was something special or kind of how would you characterize what WAER and the sports program was like then?
1: Well, Brent, you would walk into the radio station and there were photos high on the wall right by our sports area. And the photos consisted of Marty Glickman, Marv Albert, Dick Stockton, Len Berman, Bob Costas, Andy Musser, Hank Greenwald. Those are the photos that I remember. Sean McDonough was soon placed on that wall as well because he was achieving at a high level very early in his career with the Boston Red Sox and then obviously on to ESPN. So there was this clear bar that was set. When you walked into the station, you felt it. You felt the presence of it. The thing that happened for me which look you can't predict and you could go through this a hundred times show up at syracuse first day of school and have four years and pray and hope that you would have someone like this that you could learn from but it probably wouldn't happen a hundred times out of a hundred except it happened for me and that was the fact that mike Tirico was there when I was there. He was older than me. I ended up interning for him. I met him on the sideline of a high school football game in Homer, New York, started a conversation with him. We were both from Queens, so we had a connection there. I didn't know he was from Queens, pre-internet. There's no searching. He had just started WTVH. But his reputation was growing in the market, and he invited me to stop by the TV station, eventually asked me to intern for him there, Uh, Ultimately, I became a producer for him at the CBS affiliate. I produced a radio show for him as well, then co-hosted the radio show with him. Uh, You're getting a sense of of what happened and how lucky I was uh, just to be around him, to learn what it is to be professional, uh, to see how he treated people, and to watch him work. It was as if I I was getting this other degree in addition to to my work at Syracuse University and at W.A.R. So that that was seminal in many ways because it just changed everything for me. It changed uh, my whole approach to the job. And because of that, I felt that I was qualified to move on out of Syracuse and really do something in this business. I had seen it. With my own eyes, by osmosis, uh, I think I got some of the the attributes necessary to, to attack this thing. And I look back on that time, W.A.R. played a huge role, just the opportunities being in that setting. Uh, but having Mike Tirico at Syracuse and just being a fly on the wall at times to watch him work uh, was enough to... to give me the feeling like I had an advantage and I had an edge against others that just didn't have that knowledge.
0: The games that you called, I mean, just looking back at those teams, the stars, the personalities that were there in football, basketball, even lacrosse, you called lacrosse in the Gate Brothers era, which had to be just electric. You you got some of the biggest names in Syracuse history in in terms of games to call. So uh, I'm sure that didn't suck.
1: No, and and that's timing too, Brent. That is just being really fortunate. That four-year period happened to be the, to me, the the quintessential Syracuse athletics stretch of football, basketball, and lacrosse all achieving at a high level. You can't predict that. Uh, you you can't you can't go to Syracuse with the idea that it's going to go that way. It just happened, and it. I don't want to say it happened out of nowhere because things like that just don't happen out of nowhere. It was building, obviously, Jim Beheim had a very successful program. Everything clicked for Dick McPherson at that point. And on the lacrosse side, uh, you know, Coach Simmons, the way that, that this team had been working, it wasn't a shock that they were winning multiple championships, but There have been Syracuse students and broadcast students that have showed up, and their four years have have been a dud in terms of the results. So you can't take it for granted. Uh, The Syracuse basketball team in particular, you had Derek Coleman, you had Sherman Douglas, you had Stevie Thompson, you had David Johnson, you had Billy Owens. You had NBA talent. You had high-level college players. And they came within an eyelash of winning a championship over that four-year period, the loss, of course, to, to Indiana and the Keith Smart game. The football program goes to the Sugar Bowl. We've done uh, so much incredible work on that, just detailing how that all came about. That, that was just a special team with, with Don and with Moose Johnston and with Rob Moore. Uh, just great people, in addition to, to unique talents. But, that's something that you learn, too, over time, that it requires more than just talent. It does require a certain kind of, of mental approach that these guys had and a chemistry that, that was formed. And that, that sticks with you because those, as you said, they're, they're big moments, and it just happens to come at a time that is so instrumental in forming who you are. Look, I'm always going to be a fan, and I try to tell young broadcasters, don't lose that part of who you are. You just have to separate it, and you have to know the difference. But if you lose the fan part, that means you lose a little bit of the passion and you lose a little bit of what pushed you towards doing this to begin with. On the air, of course, you have to be professional. Of course, you have to be neutral. I've had a chance to call Syracuse games in the NCAA tournament, And honestly, I really believe this. If someone tuned in and they knew nothing about my resume and I'm doing Syracuse, Michigan state, or I'm doing Syracuse, Arizona state, they shouldn't know what school I went to. If Michigan state makes a big play, I'm in full throttle. If Arizona state wins the game at the buzzer, you're going to hear it from me. You're going to hear the excitement in my voice. I believe in that. Even with net games, I got, letters very early on in my tenure. Remember, specifically, the Nets were playing the Seattle Supersonics, and the Nets were not very good. The Sonics were. Sean Kemp was dunking all over the Nets, and it was one highlight after another. Again, pre-internet, pre-email, pre-Twitter. I was not that accessible. You had to actually write a letter and send it to the Net office for it to get to me. And eventually it did. And it was a fan that was lamenting the fact that I had called... Uh, Sean Kemp highlight as if I was the voice of the Seattle Supersonics. And I wrote him back. There were some expletives in there, not from me, from <laughs> him. And I wrote him back, and I explained in very distinct terms that my job is to call the action. And of course, it's better for my job when the Nets win. Of course, it's more enjoyable when the Nets win. But I wouldn't be doing my job well If there was an exciting play, a big time dunk, and I didn't convey the excitement of the moment, and then he ended up writing me back uh, saying, "Oh, now I get it. I actually love your work." You know, it was it was a funny back and forth. We're now pen pals. We we've been writing together.
0: (laughs) How is Uh, Joe, by the way? Yeah,
1: Joe, Joe is the best. I love
0: him.
1: (laughs) Uh, That was it. Our, Our our correspondence ended there, but. I felt it was important just to explain, at least in that moment, that's part of the job description. You're assigned a game, then part of the job, and uh, the requirement of the job is to be a conduit from what's happening at the event to either the viewer at home or the listener in his car or in his backyard. And if you're not doing that, then you're not doing your job correctly. I'm not saying that they're – there isn't room for, for homers, and I get it in certain markets it's going to work, and of course you're going to be excited for the team that you call, but you can't just completely pretend like the opponent isn't there either. So uh, I just think that's, that's part of, of approaching this job in the right manner, and that's also part of being still a fan and appreciating greatness when it's on the court or on the field.
0: There's truly something to be said there about if you're that upset about it, sitting down, writing a letter, putting it in an envelope, putting a stamp on it, mailing it, waiting for it to get there, waiting for the correspondence to come back as opposed to firing off a tweet, which takes about five seconds these days.
1: Yeah, it's a new world, Brent. I I obviously pay attention through one of my 17 burner accounts. I know what's (laughs) happening out there. I just choose not to participate in it because, uh, at least for me, from my perspective, it doesn't help me do my job any better as a play-by-play announcer. So if I'm calling the Buffalo Bills and the New England Patriots, which I did this season, and I'm getting a a torrent of reactions in-game and one side is telling me I'm doing this and the other side is telling me I'm doing that. It's not constructive enough to help me do my job better. And while I completely get it and I understand how important it is, uh, certainly for people in the media world to continue to, to try to connect with their audience in the best way possible. For me, I just didn't find that it would be productive to be engaged at that level. So I'm um, more of a voyeur, and I certainly know what's going on, and i in it enough to, to gather information and to benefit from the positives of, of social media and how quickly information can spread. But I, I did make a very conscious decision not to be a part of the back and forth, and uh, I think even to this moment, after years and years of, of this being as popular as it is, I still believe in my gut I made the right call.
0: Mr. Eagle, Cannot uh, tell you how much I appreciate your time here today? Best of luck and continued success to you. Best of luck and continued success to Noah. I know we'll be crossing paths again uh, down the road, but uh, thanks for your time today here on the Syracuse Sports Podcast.
1: Yeah, Brent, my, my pleasure, and uh, thank you as well. Uh, Noah took your class at Syracuse and found it to be so impactful moving forward. The hope when you take courses is it's something that you can actually use in your life and he uses it every single day and commented to me how important it was uh, to hear it from someone that he respected and to actually put it into action which he's been able to do so can't thank you enough for that always a pleasure talking to you hope we can do it again down the
0: road thank you to ian eagle and thanks to you for listening to the syracuse sports podcast we invite you to check out previous episodes, including my conversation with ESPN fantasy football expert Matthew Barry, how a job writing for the television show Married with Children led him to being a fantasy football king. Hope you can check that out, all of our previous episodes, and please subscribe so you get all of our future episodes as well. My name is Brent Axe. We'll talk to you next time.